My guest tonight is a distinguished British journalist who has done a book that is winning wide praise both in uh, the UK and here in the US and will undoubtedly do the same as they translate it and publish it all over the rest of the world. It is titled Armageddon, uh, The Battle for Germany, 1944-1945. My guest is Max Hastings, who for many years was the editor of The Telegraph, a national newspaper of considerable importance, and is these days, I guess you're freelance after all. Uh, I'm back to being a freelance struggling along milk, but um, in a way I was always a writer. I never... Um, I, I really reckoned I was going to spend the whole of my life writing military history. And then, um, end of 85, uh, they came along and asked me if I wanted to be a newspaper editor. But I always felt a bit of a fraud doing that. What I really always felt happiest doing was writing military history. History very often answers mysteries. Uh, the, history is related to mystery some, to some degree. You start with a kind of mystery, something that confounded people about World War II. That after the breakout from Normandy in June 44 and the capture of Paris in that same month, it was broadly expected that, well, we'll be virtually out of the trenches by Christmas. This war will end by the end of this year. In fact, it went on until May of 1945. And you ask, why was that? And you've got an answer. Well, I started out um, 20 years ago, I wrote a book, Overlord, about D-Day and the Battle for Normandy. And all these years I'd been messing about editing newspapers, the question had been nagging at me. I thought, why was it that in that great drive across France in August 1944, the terrific exultation among the Allies, everybody thought the Germans have had it. And at that time, as we knew from ultra-intercepted German signals, beginning of September 44, the Germans had just 100 tanks left in the West against about 4,000 on the Allied side. Um, they had about uh, 500 aircraft against 14,000 on the Western Allied side. And quite a lot of war contracts were cancelled in Washington because everybody figured that the munitions weren't going to be needed. The Joint Intelligence Committee wrote to Churchill and said they thought that by December 31st, 1944, the Germans would be beat. And Churchill was almost alone, the only man who didn't agree. And Churchill sent back to the Joint Intelligence Committee a memo in which he said that, first of all, he thought it more likely than not the Germans would still be fighting. And secondly, that if they weren't, it would be because of a political collapse in Germany and not a military one. Because Churchill probably more than any other man on the Allied side, he knew how good the Germans were. And so indeed it proved. How good were they, in fact? Uh, you rate them uh, as sort of equal to the Soviets, and you say that the Western forces were in many ways not uh, of, competent, uh, of, of equal competence as soldiers. There's no doubt that man for man, the German army was the greatest fighting force of the Second World War. But one morning when I was in the middle of writing Armageddon, I suddenly woke up and I thought to myself, if the American and British armies <clears throat> had been as good as the Waffen-SS, if they'd been the same sort of fanatics, they'd have had to have been like the Waffen-SS. And the whole purpose for which the Second World War was being fought by the Western Allies would have been set mm. at naught. But in a rather moving way, and I think a way that we ought to cherish most American and British soldiers carried through the Second World War the, all the values and decencies and inhibitions of citizen soldiers. They never really saw themselves as stormtroopers or mm. supermen. <laughs> they were bank clerks and local government officials and uh, 
laborers and uh, they were people who even when they were wearing uniform and carrying rifles all the time what they were really thinking of is they wanted to get back to real life as they knew it and of course by the winter of 44 they knew that the allies were going to win the war and in a very understandable way they wanted to be alive to see the day that um every army has its share of heroes the american army had its share of heroes so did the british but most men they don't want to win the congressional medal or the victoria cross they want to come home to their loved ones and the germans by the winter of 44 were in a state that i think one can best describe as hysterical there was a hysteria of despair they'd convinced themselves that they owed it to their loved ones to fight on to keep the russians the soviets out of <laughs> germany and they fought with the desperation of despair and i don't think we could realistically expect that the western allies would do that they fought with the desperation of despair they were worried about they feared the russians because they had done so much evil in eastern europe that they thought retribution was their due and it was coming but is there something else as well stanley payne who is an historian up at the university of wisconsin and quite an authority on fascism uh, was with us only last week on this program for yet another visit. Um, and when I asked him, what's distinctive about fascism as compared to other modes of authoritarian or totalitarian uh, uh, structuring of the polity, he said what's special to fascism is a dedication to war that one doesn't find fulfillment, and he even had Mussolini in mind. Mussolini theorized quite early, you don't find national fulfillment and national, uh, meet your national destiny unless you've got a war to fight. And what's more important than winning the war is the code of the warrior. And immolation in war is the highest possible end. Was that true for ordinary uh, members of the Waffen SS? I think this is a very profound and true remark that one of the biggest shocks, I think, that came to many leading Germans who watched Hitler's rise and watched Hitler's great days is that many of the intelligent ones suddenly realized that Hitler had no other policy but to fight, but to make war. There was no end game where everybody lived peacefully with each other, even with the Germans dominating it, that fighting was absolutely fundamental to the Nazis. And at the so, end is immolation this, rather than victory. And perhaps. this went through, I personally think, that somewhere in his... Mm -hmm. um, unbelievably complex psyche by the winter of 44. Hitler knew he was going to lose, but he'd already decided somewhere in his mind that he would as readily settle for a great cataclysm, mm -hmm. which he considered worthy of the history of the Third Reich, as he would for victory. And a remarkable number of old SS types confessed after the war that they developed um, a taste for fighting for its own sake, of just the kind you're talking mm -hmm. about. Um, that of course they wanted to win, but just living from one battle to the next was enough. And of course, in a way, the survivors who people like me interview and have been interviewing ever since the war about their experiences are not typical because an astounding number of the real fanatics died in the ruins of the Third Reich. And most probably one of the most tragic aspects of all was a number of children. A lot of Allied soldiers, American and British, have said to me that one of the worst aspects of the last phase of the war is that the most deadly enemies were the children because they didn't understand the adult rules that all these 14 and 15 year olds who grown up under Goebbels they fought just as dangerously and just as desperately as their older brothers and their fathers the last time we see Hitler above ground when it comes to newsreel footage is he's out in the courtyard uh, just next to the bunker and he's reviewing some 20 
teenage and preteen boys. He's patting one or two of them on the cheek. They're in uniform. They're about to go off to, to shoot the Russians, I suppose. One of the most moving stories a, a British soldier told me about the last battles in the last weeks. He's, he was a, a machine gunner, and um, he was in a street fight in a um, in town somewhere in the middle of Germany. And uh, there were a lot of Germans holed up in a house. And he trained his machine gun on the side door of the house because he figured that sooner or later <coughs> uh, the people in it were bound to make a breakout. And sure enough, suddenly door opens and a figure bolts out and machine gun fires a burst. And as this figure rolls over, just as he presses the trigger to fire another burst, he sees that this is the face of a child. And by then, his finger was already on the trigger. He fired. The kid turns over and he's dead. And that man said to me, as a man now nearing 80, in fact, over 80, he said, I've always wondered all my life ever since whether if I hadn't fired that second burst, that child would have grown up to be a decent human being. Yeah. Hmm. We have a number of clips, audio clips, some of them from that very time that we'll be playing as we proceed tonight. And we will proceed to examine the Allied invasion from the West and the great onslaught by the Soviets on the East and the waging of the war and how finally it was won. And we return to Sir Max Hastings, author of Armageddon, the book which gives us the basis for our conversation tonight. That is, by the way, just published by Knopf, and we return to it right after this. And we return to Max Hastings. We're drawing from his valuable and utterly readable new book, Armageddon. Uh, would it be fair to say that the Western War, forgetting the Italian campaign, really begins, the Western European War, begins with D-Day? Well, one of the things that makes a lot of Red Army veterans whom I interviewed um, so um, caustic about the Western contribution. Um, one met lots of Red Army veterans who'd been fighting for years and in yeah. some cases been wounded several times, they said, before the first Allied soldiers stepped ashore. Sure. Our D-Day um, is in June, is it June 6th yeah. uh, of 1944. <laughs> the Russians are fighting from June 41 when the Nazis invaded them. Well, I found when I was writing this book, I learned a lot of things that I hadn't known and make you stop and think about. But um, one statistic that makes you think is that in the course of the whole war, American and British ground troops, leaving air power out of it, killed about 200,000 German soldiers. Mm -hmm. And the Russians killed about three and a half million. Um, and, well, that and, gives one some measure. And of how you've got much a comparable statistic in terms of losses. Our Western losses were what as compared to Soviet? The Americans, the British, and the French, between them, lost about a million killed. The Soviets lost about 27 million killed. And that's a reflection. That's why they tend to be. Although Red Army veterans today are incredibly bitter that they feel nobody appreciates, whereas in the West, we justly honor our veterans. In Russia, they're all terribly poor because their pensions have been reduced to nothing. When I started going around interviewing them, my interpreter said, would you mind giving each of them $20? And mm. I said, well, of course not. But I said, that sounds rather insulting. She said, you don't understand. She said, $20 is more than their monthly pension. And there's an old saying among all the Red Army people. They say, wouldn't it have been so much better if the fascists had won the war because now we'd all be living like the Germans? Mm. <laughs> Let's look at the... Uh... <clears throat> All the same, we start with the Western War. Yeah. And we start with, um, of course, we know about D-Day. And then the first major event after D-Day is um, called Operation Market Garden. What was it? Who designed it? It was Montgomery, the British Field Marshal's design. In order to understand Market Garden, which was a terrible plan, which cost a lot of people their lives. It uh, was, in fact, to, a defeat. To know, oh, it was a, a serious defeat. But 
it could only have come about because Montgomery generally, for most of the war, was an incredibly careful planner. And he thought very carefully before he was a great man for the set pieces. And yet there he was in September, in September 1944, he persuaded Eisenhower to let him take this incredibly bold gamble, which involved dropping three airborne divisions um, along a succession of bridges to the Rhine, uh, and then sending um, an armored force up one Dutch road, 60 miles, mm -hmm. in order to successively relieve, first of all, the American 82nd and 101st Airborne, and then the British 1st first, uh, first Airborne Division. Before we examine how they came a cropper very badly, let's hear it at the moment. Here is a, um, an account broadcast to this country by none other than Edward R. Murrow, who's watching the parachute drop. Here, he reports from a C-47 as a group of American paratroopers parachute into Holland. Waiting to jump. Walking out of this aircraft with no flak suits, no armor plating on the ship. We're down just about to the top altitude now. A little more tracer coming up. The nine ships ahead of us have just dropped. You see the men swinging down. In just about 30 seconds now, our ship will drop, and these 19 men will walk out onto Dutch soil. You can probably hear the snap as they check the lashing on the static line. We're throttled back now. There it goes. You hear them shout? Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, seventeen, eighteen. Every man out. I can see their chutes going down now. Every man clear. They're dropping just beside a little windmill near a church. Hanging there very gracefully, to be completely relaxed, as I said a moment ago, like nothing so much as khaki dolls hanging beneath a green lampshade. <laughs> khaki dolls hanging beneath the green lampshade. It's an incredibly um, vivid moment, isn't it? Every time, one of the things that writing these books uh, always does to me is every now and again you hear people say, uh, what a tough time uh, the new generation have. The 21st century looks so rough with international terrorism and Al-Qaeda and so on. And yet, as soon as you look at what that generation did and uh, the experiences they went through, they were something quite out of, out of our generation. There we have 20 guys khaki dolls hanging from a green lampshade. How many of them, I wonder, survived? Most of them survived, but the actual overall losses in Market Garden uh, were actually not that great. That uh, Only about, when I say only, it's 4,000 killed sounds an awful lot, but on the uh, Western Allied side, it was about 4,000. Uh, but well, you had about uh, 40,000 airborne troops mm -hmm. were dropped, and then, of course, you had the ground force. But it was a crazy plan, because it involved it was necessary for the armored force to, uh, to crack up this single Dutch road, 60 miles, when the Germans um, were still there and fighting very toughly. And the only way you can explain Montgomery making this huge error of judgment, or two ways. First, he was an egomaniac, and um, he was absolutely committed to keeping control of the drive into Germany in his own hands. And in fact, I've argued in my book, mm -hmm that on Bradley's front, there was a much better chance of making the breakthrough into Germany than there was in Holland. Holland was where, where was Bradley's front? Bradley was um, uh, further south uh, down toward around mm -hmm. the Ardennes and then further south beyond that too, but and around uh, uh, Aachen and, uh, and places like that, the, mm -hmm. the northern end of the Siegfried Line uh, on the borders of Germany. 
And in that area, there was a much better chance for a breakthrough into Germany than there was on the Dutch front, because Holland was a hell of a country to try and advance in, because it's dead flat. You've got all these waterways. You couldn't drive tanks off the road. But Montgomery was, was first of all, obsessed with trying to keep the advance in his hands, and the British and Canadians were in Holland. And secondly, he thought the Germans were beat. And in fact, you could never count the Germans out until the last round. And when you look at what they achieved, that they were completely taken by surprise by the landings in Arnhem especially. They're in the town of Arnhem. And everybody says today, oh, well, the British 1st Airborne Division were defeated by crack SS um, um, Panzer Grenadiers. It wasn't quite like that. But it's true that there were the remains of two Panzer divisions around Arnhem. But in the first few hours after the British drop, just outside the town of Arnhem, that they were held up by a whole gang of almost signalers, cooks, bottle washers, odd Luftwaffe people, um, engineers, um, a group that happened to be training in the woods near Arnhem and suddenly saw all these British paratroopers come down and the colonel commanding them immediately guessed what the British were there for. They were trying to break through to Arnhem. And this mob, and it was no more and no less, of German troops held up the best of the British paratroopers for the first vital hours while the main body of the Germans were getting their act together. And in fact, that battle was lost in the first hours. That action is in September, mid-September. September, mid September. September oh. the 17th, uh, a Sunday, they dropped into yeah. Holland. And really, once they'd failed to grab the bridges, uh, in fact, the key bridges at Nijmegen and at Arnhem, it was mm -hmm. the American 82nd at Nijmegen and the British first airborne. The British had a foothold at one side of the bridge at Arnhem across the Rhine. But once they'd failed to seize the bridges and hold them, really, after that, it was a very tough and bloody battle, but the Germans yeah. had really succeeded. Nijmegen has called the bridge success. too far, isn't it? Arnhem was the one that was described as the bridge too far. It was far, Arnhem but itself. I, but yeah. actually, Nijmegen, which was the sort of next one short of it, um, was the one, the American airborne, it has to be said, put up a better performance than the British uh, throughout the battle. But the one bridge that the American Airborne were not successful in seizing on the first day was the Nijmegen Bridge, and the Germans were able to get a very tight grip on the it. The 82nd was commanded by... Uh, Jim Gavin. By Jim Gavin. One of the great American fighting soldiers. Yes, he was, war. wasn't he? You know, he was on this program once. In later years, he ran some outfit in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah, I met him, uh, and uh, when I was writing um, an earlier book, Overlord, I admired him endlessly. He's incredibly rude. I, I read his diaries when I was writing uh -huh. this book, and... Gavin, who was the real all-American hero, and his diaries are full of his frustration. He said, everybody wants to live to be 100. Yeah. But, um, if only everybody would fight, if anybody, people would get uh -huh. out there. And he was so contemptuous of the way that most infantrymen, uh, when they came under fire, would go to ground and call in airstrikes and so on and so forth. And he said, why can't they get up there and get on in there and fight? Where else did the Germans surprise us and block us? during those months all the way through all the all way the down way the line again and again as for example, what happened where? was that small bodies well it happened in the Siegfried line that mm -hmm. the Siegfried line von Rundstedt the German commander in the West told Hitler in the beginning of September 44 he said it was going to be many weeks before the Siegfried line was defensible but actually they were able to shove just enough men and just enough tanks into the line to hold up the uh, the Western Allies and by that stage, of course, there was a, a major supply problem because there were only enough supplies <laughs> in September to support the British advance, to support one advance. And once Montgomery got his way that it was a British advance through Arnhem, uh, that uh, um, then 
uh, the, the Americans were temporarily stuck. Still, we were buoyed by a kind of optimism. We still thought it was going to be a bit of a rump. There was a song that was sung by none other than Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters, which gives, uh, which was quite popular in this country, whether it was in the UK or not, I don't know. It must have been in the American uh, military camps in the UK. Uh, it's Hot Time in the Town of Berlin. Here it is. be a hot time in the town of Berlin when the Yanks go marching in. I want to be their boy, spread some joy when they take old Berlin. There'll be a hot time in the town of Berlin when the Brooklyn boys begin to take the joint apart and tear it down when they take old Berlin. They're going to start a row and show them how we paint the town back in Kokomo. They're going to take a hike through Hitler's Reich and change that hire to what you know, Joe. There'll be a hot time in the town of Berlin when the Yanks go marching in. You can never keep them happy down on the farm after they take Berlin. A hot time in the town of Berlin when the Yanks go marching in. I wanna be their boy, spread some joy when they take over Berlin. And may I join you? There'll be a hot time in the town of Berlin when the Brooklyn boys begin to take the joint apart, tear it down when they take over Berlin. They're gonna start a row and show them how we paint the town back in Michigan. They're gonna take a hike through Hitler's right and change the aisle to give me some skin. There'll be a hot time in the town of Berlin when the Yanks go marching in. You're never gonna keep them happy down on the farm after they take Berlin. I have to say, Mel, listening to that wonderful music, that I met a, a Dresdener, a young Dresdener called um, Gotts Baganda, um, who used secretly and against, of course, all the Nazi laws to listen to American radio through the war. And he said all the propaganda broadcasts were wasted on him. But he said the music convinced him that any nation who could make music like the United States was going to rule the world. Well, I don't think that got too many Germans to surrender that particular song. It's terribly optimistic. We don't quite know when it was done. I don't know whether it was before the uh, the Western invasion or whether it was after the D-Day uh, invasion and the breakout. But it certainly is more optimistic than we had any right to be. Well, everybody thought it was going to end in Berlin. And there was an expectation um, on both sides uh, that a, a Danish journalist who was um, in Berlin all through the war, he wrote in his very good account of what happened to him, in, was that he sort of vaguely assumed that would end up with a triumphal victory parade mm -hmm. up the Unter der Linden, and, uh, and he assumed that it would be the Americans, the British, who were doing it. The particularly great and uh, startling and uh, absolutely debilitating confrontation and defeat was uh, the Battle of the Bulge. Ultimately, we won, but that was certainly a real setback for the Allied forces. And it came around uh, December of 44, did it not? Well, 
we want to talk about that after we pause for some commercials, and then let's replay the Battle of the Bulge with Sir Max Hastings, author of the important new book, Armageddon, The Battle for Germany, 1944-1945, published by Alfred A. Knopf. And we return to Max Hastings as we replay not all of World War II, but the last year of World War II. Uh, which is the big year for the Allies. It's the only year, well, I keep saying apart from Italy, but Italy was important, and North Africa was important before that. Well, it was important in its way for us, but when you think that at the time of the big British victory in November 42 at Alamein, mm -hmm. that the Germans only had about three divisions deployed, whereas they got nearly 200 divisions on the Eastern Front, that gives you some mm -hmm. idea that however big it was to us, the Brits, uh, it wasn't so important you know, to the Germans. It suddenly occurs to me, an aside, a footnote, a large footnote, to put... What is it? one of the central questions. What, how was Hitler so stupid as to invade the Soviet Union at all? Why was it, it, why did he, was it inevitable? Was he compelled to do so because it was his lifelong commitment or what? Well, we the British used to flatter ourselves for years that we were his principal enemy. But in truth, we now know from everything we know about Hitler that his chief ambitions were always focused on creating a great empire in the... Well, it's in Mein Kampf. He wanted to create this Eastern Empire. He writes that down uh, in Mein Kampf in the, in the mid-1920s. The scariest thing any of us could think about, if he hadn't invaded the Soviet Union, We'd be gone. he could have taken out, despite the Battle of Britain, he could have conquered Britain in 1940. And although most of us think the United States would have come into the war sometime, that Hitler might have achieved... Um, a, a terrifyingly tight grasp on a very large part of the world before America came in. Mm -hmm. And uh, it could have been, no, it's the biggest, by far the most important if of the Second World War, if he hadn't invaded Russia. All of his generals were, were opposed, were they not? Well, not all of them, actually. And um, what is scariest of all is when occasionally people try and pretend that a lot of these great German commanders, like Guderian and Manstein, were upright gentlemen who never liked the Nazis. They were in up to their necks with the plan for invading Russia, which involved mm -hmm. the systematic starvation of tens of millions of Russians to feed Germany. Well, it was part of the plan. It's, it, again, it's laid out in Mein Kampf, which is written, I believe, in 1924 when he's in prison, um, in which he says, uh, our fate is in the east, the Drang nach Osten, yep. and uh, that will be German territory. And to make it feasible, we have to thin out the population of that Unterrasse, the Slavs, not the Jews. The Jews, of course, are anathema and must be handled, but also we're going to get rid of the Slavs. And in fact, when he had two million Soviet prisoners in the area that essentially became Auschwitz, he starved them to death. Yeah. No, Auschwitz, um, that the world knows that um, more than two million Jews died in Auschwitz, but it's less well known yeah. that some two million Russians and gypsies and Poles died in Auschwitz too. And when one talks to Russian prisoners about their experiences, because um, I forget the exact figure, but something like three million Soviet prisoners died in German hands. And of course, the worst thing of all was that um, Stalin, who in his way, as we know, was quite as evil as Hitler, um, Stalin's treatment of his own people, he treated every single Russian who'd allowed himself to be taken prisoner by the Germans in no matter what circumstance, as an actual prospective traitor when they came back at the end of the war. And I talked to a lot of ex-Russian prisoners who suffered terrible experiences in a German concentration camp. One of them described he came back, he spent weeks in a Russian concentration camp, and then when they reluctantly let him go, his papers were stamped as a former prisoner, so he couldn't get work. 
he finally, in Leningrad, where he was starving in the streets, he went to the local police chief. He said, mm. I want to work. What am I to do? What am I to do? And the police chief in Leningrad just said, he said, as a former prisoner, you're fortunate enough to be allowed to, to live in this city. He said, you can clean shoes on the Nevsky Prospect. And many, many Red Army prisoners who'd done brave things in the Second World War lived on the brink of starvation until after Stalin's death, when in most cases they were rehabilitated. Mm. Let us return to the Western War and to the Battle of the Bulge. What happened? Well, the crazy thing about the Battle of the Bulge was everybody on both sides of the line recognized it was Hitler's great folly, that Hitler threw all his forces, all his remaining armored forces, ready into this huge attack, which everybody recognized um, on both sides. The German generals didn't want to do it because they realized that even if uh, they managed to push some way and, and give the Americans a fright that they were never going to achieve Hitler's am, objective. Am I right? This, this is after we've already crossed the Rhine. And no, it's before cross the Rhine but crossing wasn't until the But we have taken five. Aachen. But Aachen was taken. A, a major German city in the southwest. Yeah. Um, but, uh, the, the Hitler launched uh, the Operation um, Autumn Mist in, the, uh, in uh, December the 16th, 1944. And it did give the Allied commanders the most tremendous fright. But exactly as everybody who thought about it, once they got over their initial amazement, the reason the Allies were so amazed is because it made no sense that once the German tank forces started to collide with the enormously superior Allied forces there, the, it could only have one outcome. And so, yes, um, they had their spectacular and a lot of American troops went through an appalling time. Um, there they were already um, cold and pretty miserable in this unbelievably um, um, wet and cold um, trenches out there in Luxembourg and on the borders of Germany. And um, now suddenly they found the very best of what was left of the German army thrown at them. It was a terribly traumatic experience for them. But once the Allies got over that first shock, well, exactly what everybody anticipated. Stalin said when he first heard about it, a very stupid move. And so it was. And um, Lightning Joe Collins, who was probably the ablest American Corps commander in Europe, he said this could shorten the war by six months. But after this ferocious battle in which even the SS fanatics knew that after the first couple of days when they hadn't achieved the decisive breakthrough that they weren't going to get anywhere, um, and as they found their tanks running out of fuel, as the weather improved and the Allies were able to get fighter bombers onto the battlefield and really start hammering the Germans. The curious thing was that Eisenhower and those around him, they were pretty unnerved by what had happened. And Eisenhower, after the bulge, he was determined to move very cautiously <laughs> through the last phase of the war. So Lightning Joe Collins was wrong. He did not shorten the war by six months, the bulge. Uh, because the Western Allies were always terrified that Hitler might have one more big stunt up his sleeve. And it was incredibly dramatic, but it was Hitler's stupidest last move. If he hadn't done the bulge, then it's perfectly true he might have been able to keep going for a while longer. Now the camera eye, po poised above all of this, shifts to the east. What's happening over there at the same time, roughly? The reason um, Hitler chose to launch his, he wanted to get his big offensive in in the West, but because he knew that as soon as the weather improved, Stalin was going to launch his huge offensive from uh, the Vistula 
uh, westwards. So Hitler was trying to exploit that last window of opportunity. But of course, the consequence of the bulge was a lot of his best formations, surviving armored SS formation, have been chewed up in the bulge. Uh, before Stalin launched his great attack. Have they been taken from the east, Eastern Front? Some had been taken from the East. Including the tanks, to, certainly. And certainly, if they, hadn't, if they hadn't been fighting in the bulge, they would have mm -hmm. been sent to the East. Yeah. And Guderian, um, as Hitler's most senior commander, Guderian desperately wanted to pull him out of uh, the Western fighting and get him into the East for the huge Russian offensive that he knew was coming. Because, of course, everything the Russians did, I mean, Zhukov, who was, I've argued in my book, probably the most effective allied commander of the war. Um, Zhukov and Konyev were preparing this vast offensive to drive to the Oda um, in preparation for the last phase of the war. And the Russians by that stage, they got something like um, uh, four million men uh, ready in the, um, in the east to um, drive through the snows and the offensive they finally launched just after the Bulge battle ended in mid-January 1945. Um, and that offensive the Germans who fought the Russians, they found fighting the Americans and the British not too terrible experience compared with fighting the Russians. Um, the only thing they did say about fighting the Russians, they didn't have to deal with air power in the way that they did on the Western Front. But there was no mercy ever shown on the Eastern Front. But um, German soldiers who went through the experience of fighting in the East, they knew they could expect nothing but death and destruction. Uh, and not only the German soldiers, but once they reach, once Soviet forces reach Germany, the German civilian population as well is faced by a rampaging horde, apparently. Stalin was determined to extract a terrible revenge on behalf of his own people. He didn't care how many German women were raped or how many Germans were killed. And when one is trying to compare the experience, when one wants to realize what a pampered generation my generation is, not quite yours, Milt, but mm -hmm. mine and our children's generation. While I was writing this book, I had a letter from a German woman um, who now lives in England. And she said, I was in Berlin in um, 1945. She said, I kept a diary. Would you like to see it? And she sent me a diary. And in it, she described, after describing her, her time in the German labor service, um, April 1945, she and her sister are in Berlin with their parents. The Red Army sweeps in, raping every woman between 13 and 73. And both these girls, not yet 18, are repeatedly raped by Russian soldiers. Their own mother then says to them, your honor is going, gone, you have nothing left to live for, and takes them up on the roof of their apartment building and tells them to jump while their father stands in the street below, screaming at them not to. And this ghastly scene goes on for 10 minutes with these girls screaming and sobbing until finally they run back into uh, the building and they ignore their mother and they live. But, but many others did commit suicide oh yes, there were, under we, similar we shall, circumstances. We shall never know how many, but yeah. certainly tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Germans killed themselves. And you have scenes of German women act. literally crucified after being raped. Goebbels made a lot of this, that when the Red Army first broke into East Prussia, up on the Baltic, mm -hmm. which was the sort of furthest, the most northern, northeastern most extremity of, of the old Greater Reich, that um, in August 1944, the Red Army broke into some border villages, which the most notorious was Nemesdorf. And 
the Germans were eventually able to throw the Russians back out of Nemesdorf. When they got in there, they found women crucified against barn doors and children killed in the most terrible ways and children with their heads beaten in and so on. And, of course, Goebbels summoned all the photographers mm. to photograph this, and he said, this is a sample of what awaits Germany if we allow the Russians to break in. And, of course, the irony is that we can now see and probably if the Russian, if the Germans had been rational in 45, they would have seen this, that if they'd given in quickly, that what happened to Germany would have been far less terrible than it was. If they'd allowed themselves to be beaten in 44, they would never have gone through mm. the unspeakable experiences that faced Germany in 45. All the same, how does one account for the uh, total lack of discipline on the part of the Soviet troops? Or were they, in fact, uh, essentially ordered to let go just this way? There was a paradox about the Red Army. On the one hand, it was a fantastically effective fighting force by 44-45. On the other hand, it was the, probably one of the most fantastically undisciplined army in the history of the warfare. That all the jokes, it wasn't a joke. Alcohol, the whole, maybe only with copious quantities of vodka, could the Red Army have endured what it endured between 1941 and 45? We have to remember, this is an army that shot 167,000 of its own men in 1941-42 for alleged cowardice um, or desertion. And the terrible experiences that army went through, maybe it was only by drinking on a heroic scale or an appalling scale, they were able to do all this. And the things people did, I mean, that, that again and again, um, Russian soldiers um, would shoot each other when drunk, would mm. drown themselves in vats of alcohol, um, would um, mm. crash vehicles, killing themselves um, because they were um, drunk and driving. This was a fantastically drunken army. Seems to me you have two savage hordes confronting each other in the East, and the polite Brits and Americans and even French are doing their little uh, operation in the West. Well, the phrase I've used in the book, I've said it sometimes seemed that the Western allies were uncomprehending eavesdroppers upon this death struggle yeah. between these two yeah. terrible tyrannies in the, in the East. In the East, it has to be said, the German army was on the whole sober. It was the Russian army that was persistently, unbelievably drunk. The German army was sober, but it was complicit in the Holocaust and in the general trampling over the, the rights and the lives of East European non-Jews as well. Well, one thing that has to be faced, that those who claim that only the Nazis did it, um, I think it's accepted widely oh, now yes. by historians that in the end, Hitler could not have remotely sustained his grip on his empire until 1945 had not a very large number of Germans been right in there with him. And what's extraordinary is that um, there's a very good mm. phrase from an Allied war correspondent, a famous Australian war correspondent called Alan Moorhead, he wrote in 1945 from Germany, he said, the Germans have no sense of guilt, but they do have a very strong sense of defeat. And at the very end, I don't think there was any great sense of guilt. But a lot of Allied soldiers remarked when they watched when, when German civilians were conscripted to help clear up the concentration camps, a British soldier wrote that they seemed to do this with no more concern than if they'd been clearing up the kitchen at home. Somebody once described the 20th century as that slum of a century. Uh, it was an unspeakable century, that such terrible things in it ha happened in it that we just have to pray that our century will be less terrible. And certainly, whenever we complain about things that have happened since 1945, 
we are incredibly lucky that we haven't been through what a lot of them went through. But um, I had a very an experience that made a great impression on me while I was interviewing veterans for this book. I interviewed a um, American Army nurse called Dorothy Beavers uh, uh, over in Delaware. And she was describing to me how she was at Ebensee concentration camp in 1945. And they found a whole group of very highly educated young hung Hungarian Jewish girls, many of whom spoke, spoke good English, who were in an unspeakable state on the brink of death. And when a Life magazine photographer turned up, that one of the girls ran off um, sobbing. And Dorothy Beavers went over to comfort her. And, and this girl said, look at me. She said, I'm 20 years old. And what man is ever going to want to look at me? And I said to, Dor to Dorothy Beavers, I said, I wonder what happened to that girl. And she said, I'll tell you. She said she lives in Queens, oh. in New York. So when I was back in New York, I went to see her in Queens. And she's a very remarkable woman called Edith Gabor. Um, and I talked to her for three or four hours about her extraordinary experiences, appalling experiences in German concentration camps. And then I'd ordered a taxi to take me to Kennedy to get a flight back to London. And the taxi didn't come. And I started to get impatient, and I started to get angry and worried about missing this airplane and so on. Edith Gabor came out on the pavement and she laughed and she said, relax. She said, it's not important. She said, it doesn't matter. She said, when you've been in a death camp, you come to see that missing an airplane really doesn't matter very much. And I blushed then as I blush now that I could have displayed that preoccupation. We're all obsessed with trivia now. And that generation, they had to learn in the most terrible, terrible fashion mm. what the realities of real life, what, what real life is about in a way that, thank God, we never have. Yeah. I haven't yet said that your book is full of portraits of and the stories of individuals in various phases of the war and in many different locations. She is one of the people mentioned. You interviewed some 170 or more uh, ordinary folks, so to speak. I find this incredibly moving. It's especially important in uh, Germany and Russia because in America and Britain, there are a lot of oral archives now that a lot mm. of people do record their memories either on paper or on tape and we've got those forever. In Russia, there's no such record, and therefore you feel we've got to get on with it and see these people and listen to their incredible stories while they're still there. And before they're gone, of course. We uh, pause uh, briefly for the usual reasons, and then we will return to Max Hastings, continuing to tell the story of the last uh, eight or nine months of World War II. Armageddon is the book that we're drawing from, and we return directly after these words. There is much to talk about tonight with Max Hastings. We, uh, that is, all of the last year of World War II, and we're just touching a few of the important aspects of it. Therefore, we probably won't get to the phones till about 10.30 tonight, uh, but the lines will be open. In fact, they're even open right now. The number 591-7200. I don't advise that you call instantly, but as we approach 10.30, you may want to get in line. 591 7200. Let's take an overview of the strategy in the West, the one that led us on towards Berlin. Well, the big question, everybody, um, a good many historians since 1945 have attacked Eisenhower for failing to go to Berlin, and for that matter, have been very critical of, of the way the Allies played it as the Russians swept across Eastern Europe in 1945. And it's absolutely true. The, um, Churchill, of course, as Roy Jenkins put it very well in his biography of Churchill recently, he said Churchill enjoyed the years of victory less than he expected, because after all Churchill had endured in 40 and 41, 
by the end of 44, Churchill was haunted by awareness that while the Allies were going to liberate Western mm. Europe, that Eastern Europe was going to fall into the hands of a dreadful tyranny. The trouble was, and the reason I think Eisenhower deserves a lot of sympathy for his predicament in 45, the United States had set out very consciously to fight the Second World War in an altruistic spirit. Henry Kissinger, when I interviewed him for this book about his own experiences, and Kissinger said... Yes, Sergeant Kissinger. Sergeant Kissinger, as he was then, Staff yeah. Sergeant Kissinger. And he said, well, sure, he said, Roosevelt was naive, but he said um, he was determined to be the president who um, did not seek anything, did not seek any geopolitical gains for the United States out of the war. If we'd wanted to liberate, if the Western allies had wanted to liberate Eastern Europe, they would have needed to fight the war very differently and with much greater urgency from a very early stage. For instance, America mobilized an army of only 80 divisions, much smaller proportion of its manpower than any other nation, because America made a very conscious decision in 42 that it was going to use its huge technological superiority and industrial power um, to do most of the, uh, of the winning of the war, rather than flesh and blood, which is a, a rational point of view. But um, the result was that by 44, when Eisenhower goes into Europe, he had a much smaller army than he needed if he was going to do big things. But he wasn't sent there with a brief from the chiefs of staff in Washington or from the president to sort out the future of post-war Europe. He was sent there to defeat the Nazis, to end Hitler's tyranny. And it was only at a very late stage that people, other than Churchill, really began to get their minds around what Stalin was doing in the East. So I'm afraid the truth was there was no way that in the last stage you could suddenly change the yeah. rules and save Eastern Europe from the Soviets. Still, we took a good part of Germany uh, heading east. Uh, who did what with, with what kinds of forces? I'm one of those who thinks that if Patton had been given the, the Bradley's command uh, in the 12th Army Group in the northern part of Germany, mm -hmm. that uh, the Allies might have gone along faster. But of course, even, we all know why he wasn't. Well, even though you say Patton was a madman, your word. Well, he was, but then an awful lot of great generals have been. I uh -huh. mean, he was, he was, I won't quite say man. I said he was on the, mm -hmm. on, the, on the edge of derangement. And most of the people who worked with him thought that. But you need some lunatics to, I mean, an awful lot of heroes are not weak flesh and blood like us. Um, that you need a few near madmen to do the business. Um, sane men don't win congressional medals of honor very one of your, often. Didn't they? One of your fiercest generals in the American Revolutionary War was called by the Americans at least Mad Anthony Wayne. Absolutely. And um, looking, I mean, damn it, you, I don't think you could really say that um, Montgomery was a very normal human being. That um, when you're fighting wars, you need some pretty strange sort of people to do it. And but, of course, Patton was in disgrace over the notorious slapping incident in Sicily. And so he was put down with Third Army in the south of Germany. And it was never really realistic that the, the southern axis was going to be the one by which the Allies broke into Germany. And Patton, of course, kept trying to steal um, the center of the stage. But strategically, it was never going to work. And <laughs> it was just the way things panned out. Bradley... One or two historians like Carlo Desti have taken a very tough view of Bradley in recent years. It's certainly true that Bradley wasn't inspired. But Eisenhower, having to deal with these two worse than prima donnas, we won't quite say near lunatics, but these two 
pretty far out people, Patton and Montgomery, was so grateful to have somebody relatively sane and normal and reliable like Bradley in the middle that Eisenhower was very happy with that. Um, that Bradley's army, yes, the, 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 the Western advance into Germany was a pretty plodding business, but I mean, German officers I interviewed, the Germans are like this even now. I mm -hmm. remember one German officer I saw, he said, if we'd have been doing it, we'd have been Berlin in two months. And, of course, they say that because they, they didn't think much of our performance. But we were, the, the, the Western Allies were citizen army. Let's, let's hear the Americans taking one other German city, namely uh, Cologne. Cologne. This is uh, Bill Downs reporting, again, to the American radio audience on March 24, 1945. We went in as cover for the first wave of carrier planes that arrived. And honest to God, those paratroopers stepped out on a carpet of flak that you could walk on. I saw two parachutists who somehow had gotten tangled in each other's parachutes. And Tommy muttered to himself over the intercom, Come on, come on, break it up. Break away, for God's sake. But these two men didn't have a chance to break away and their bodies seemed to hit the earth with the gentleness of raindrops. But from a thousand feet, you could tell they were dead. No, that is not the Rhine, uh, that is not uh, Cologne, that is the Rhine crossing, as you pointed out to me. Uh, he is reporting from Cologne uh, for this particular radio broadcast. Well, the Rhine crossing, of course, was the last great set piece of the Western campaign, and it was one of those tragedies. Paratroopers have always been very glamorous figures, but Parachute drops have always been um, a pretty good mess, and the irony was that very the Allies the Allies handled um, the river crossing of the Rhine brilliantly. And as everybody mm -hmm. knows, the Remagen Festival, and then Patton got men across, and then Montgomery staged a great, great set piece. And the irony was that the river crossing of the Rhine went brilliantly, but then they had this huge parachute drop, which was a shambles. And having been very briefly myself a paratrooper, and having taken part in uh, one or two absolutely shambolic drops, the one lesson even in peacetime one learned about parachute drops is that they're always a terrible mess. And the Rhine drop was a was a tragedy, because the Allies, having lost unbelievably few people, getting across the Rhine, across the river, by the Remagen Bridge, and then uh, mm -hmm. uh, with assault boats, um, then went and lost um, hundreds of kills. You, you did some parachute drops parachute. as a paratrooper yourself? Yeah. In war or in... No, no, no. I'm afraid only on exercises, but, but one's seen enough of it to see what a shambles but it is. But you were one of the first British reporters uh, in the Falkland Islands War, weren't you? Yeah, but you, what you learn, you can't compare anything, any of the wars that we've all been involved in since the Second World War, uh, with what people did in the Second mm. World War in Korea. They were on such a vast scale compared with, you know, you hear now um, units that have lost um, 10 or 15 people killed talking about heavy casualties. Well, of course, in the Second World War, units would sometimes take 50, 60 percent casualties and be expected to keep fighting. So, yes, all you learn from the sort of thing I did as a young war correspondent was you learn what it's like to be under fire and you learn what it's like to be in battle. But one should never compare any of our experiences with what they went through. When, as the Western armies are advancing eastward, uh, do the Germans essentially give up and start surrendering? Or are they fighting all the way? They fought almost to the very end in the West, and there was some incredibly tough fighting, especially against the children. Uh, against the children? In, well, that? against these Goebbels indoctrinated mm -hmm. German kids in uniform, who some oh, of them nice. fought. There was, a, there was an air of hysteria about it all. And the irony is, people often talk about the Japanese as having been fanatical in World mm -hmm. War II. 
Well, the truth is the Japanese never fought to defend their homeland after the atomic bombs were dropped. And, of course, the atomic bombs inflicted vastly fewer deaths than Germany suffered. And Germany, there was patchy resistance right to the end in some towns and villages that little groups of fanatics would hold out and they would literally fight to the death against the advancing Allies. And one of the tragedies was there was nothing more awful, really, if you were an Allied soldier with a victorious army, than to die in those last weeks of the war mm -hmm. in some pitiful little battle that nobody ever heard of and never got into history books for some little German town where a few fanatics were holed up. And it was, it was very, very tough for the Allied soldiers in those last weeks. Whereas, of course, in the, in the East, the fighting was far more ferocious and the, the Russian casualties were still enormous. But both in the East and in the West, and surely in the West, we uh, still have the mystery of, or at least the striking fact, of the German commanding uh, officers keeping the war going when they knew it was totally lost. Well, I've said in my book that the claim of the German armies um, for us to regard the German army in the war with contempt, however brilliant the great commanders, Guderian and Manstein and others were as fighting soldiers, they failed the world and the German people by failing to do something about Hitler because they were the, the only people who both knew that the war was lost and had the power to do something about it. But the German officers' revolt against Hitler in July 44 was pretty pathetic. It was not really very serious, and most of the German army didn't Stauffenberg join in. Stauffenberg bomb plot, you and mean. I, I met in, exactly. Yeah. And I met a lot of German officers who even all these years afterwards would still say, when I said, you know, why didn't you join the bomb plot or whatever, they'd say, mm -hmm. we had taken our oath of loyalty to Hitler, mm. who even in the year of our Lord 2001, or 2002 when I was interviewing them, would still say that their oath to Hitler was valid. And this to all of us seems crazy. And you'd think they'd have got the message by now. But I mean, some of them, I mean, one SS veteran I, I interviewed, he talked to me for some hours about his experiences on the Eastern and Western Front. And I said to him, intending to be ironic, I said, well, you sound as if you enjoyed it. And he said, ah, he said, they were great days. He said, the two greatest days of my life. He said, 1934, I took the oath to Hitler's bodyguard, the Leibstandarte. He said, 1936, said, Nuremberg, you have seen the newsreels, the searchlights, the Fuhrer, the crowds. I was there, I was there. And I, you know, here's a man of 84 or 5 mm. who still really was rather proud of his role in the Third Reich and certainly mm. very proud of having held up the Allies for so long in 45. Well, here's one, one thing that they wrought when you ask what did the Nazis achieve. Here's a report from Edward R. Murrow uh, about the, um, uh, when they reach Buchenwald and they examine what they find at that concentration camp. As the underbelly of Nazi Germany was laid bare, Allied troops uncovered the true horror of the Holocaust. In one of Murrow's most famous and haunting broadcasts, he described what he witnessed at the liberation of Buchenwald concentration camp on April 12, 1945. Permit me to tell you what you would have seen and heard had you been with me on Thursday. It will not be pleasant listening. If you're at lunch, or if you have no appetite to hear what Germans have done, now is a good time to switch off the radio. For I propose to tell you of Buchenwald. It is on a small hill about four miles outside Weimar. And it was one of the largest concentration camps in Germany. And it was built to last. There surged around me an evil-smelling horde. 
Men and boys reached out to touch me. They were in rags and the remnants of uniforms. Death had already marked many of them, but they were smiling with their eyes. I looked out over that mass of men to the green fields beyond, where well-fed Germans were plowing. I asked to see one of the barracks. When I entered, men crowded around, tried to lift me to their shoulders. They were too weak. Many of them could not get out of bed. I was told that this building had once stabled 80 horses. There were 1,200 men in it, five to a bunk. As I walked down to the end of the barracks, there was applause from the men too weak to get out of bed. It sounded like the hand clapping of babies. As we walked out into the courtyard, a man fell dead. Two others, they must have been over 60, were crawling towards the latrine. I saw it, but will not describe it. In another part of the camp, they showed me the children, hundreds of them. Some were only six. One rolled up his sleeve, showed me his number. It was tattooed on his arm. D-6030 it was. The others showed me their numbers. They will carry them till they die. An elderly man standing beside me said, the children, enemies of the state. I could see their ribs through their thin shirts. The children clung to my hands and stared. We crossed to the courtyard. Men kept coming up to speak to me and to touch me. Professors from Poland, doctors from Vienna, men from all Europe. Men from the countries that made America. We proceeded to the small courtyard. There were two rows of bodies stacked up like cordwood. They were thin and very white. Some had been shot through the head, but they bled but little. I tried to count them as best I could and arrived at the conclusion that all that was mortal of more than 500 men and boys lay there in two neat piles. It appeared that most of the men and boys had died of starvation, but the manner of death seemed unimportant. Murder had been done at Pugenwald. God alone knows how many men and boys have died there during the last 12 years. I pray you to believe what I have said about Buchenwald. I have reported what I saw and heard, but only part of it. For most of it, I have no words. If I have offended you by this rather mild account of Buchenwald, I am not in the least sorry. And, of course, Buchenwald is not an extermination camp. It's a concentration camp. Well, I was very struck by one uh, piece of evidence I came across, an account from a concentration camp survivor mm -hmm. who said he'd been in a variety of, of camps, and he said, Auschwitz was not the worst camp I was in. He said, in Auschwitz, you were either alive or you were dead. He said, I've been in worse places. And I met a lot of um, Russians, especially, who had been in worse places. There was one story in particular, I think one of the most extraordinary stories I've ever heard about the Second World War. I met a Red Army fighter pilot called Mikhail Devotayev. And he was shot down over the German lines in the beginning of 45, and quite badly injured. And he spent some weeks in a prison hospital where he took the precaution of changing identities with a dead Red Army soldier uh, because the Germans had a habit of not treating Soviet pilots very well. When he recovered, he was sent as a slave laborer to Pinamundra on the Baltic, where they were building the V-2 rocket. And when he'd been in the slave labor camp at Pinamundra with um, about 20,000 other Russians for we a few pause days... for a moment to point out that he was working for Werner von Braun. He was. Um, that uh, he concluded that if he stayed in the camp, they had no hope of survival because they were dying of starvation at the rate of about 1,500 a week. And he reckoned that 
even if they survived, that the Germans would kill the survivors uh, before the Red Army got to them. So one morning he said to his work gang, he said, we're going to escape. And they said, how do you mean? I said, how can you escape? This is an island. The only people who've tried have, have been torn to pieces by the dogs. He said, I'm a pilot. I'm going to fly you out. And he had some trouble convincing them that he could do it, that he was a pilot. But one morning, uh, they clubbed their guard to death, and they ran about 400 yards down the runway to the commandant's personal Heinkel. And after considerable technical difficulties, they managed to get in and get it started and take off over the Baltic. And they had a terrible time because he'd never flown a twin-engine aircraft before. He couldn't get the undercarriage up. He didn't know how half the controls worked. He was so weak that another prisoner had to lean over and help him move the controls. But somehow, they flew this plane over the Baltic for an hour and a half till they made a landfall. And they found eventually they were over the Russian lines and they crash-landed in the snow. This is February 1945. And... They were so weak, they couldn't get out of the wreckage of the plane when they landed, but they sat there until a Red Army cavalry patrol arrived. And the first hour or two, they were treated as heroes, as well they might, because there's no question this was the most remarkable escape of the Second World War. But then Stalin's secret police, the NKVD, arrived. And the NKVD interrogated them for some hours and then said, what you claim to have done is impossible. This is obviously a German plot. Well, the rest of the work gang uh, were sent to a punishment battalion where five of the eight were killed clearing mines and the crossing of the Oder. And Debutayev, I said, where did you spend V-Day? And he said, where I spent the next year, in solitary confinement. Well, after a year, the NKVD was obliged to admit that there might be something in his story because when they liberated Pinamunda and they found some survivors, they confirmed the truth of the story. But... The Stalinist regime would never admit that it was totally wrong, so Devyatayev was released, but always still with his papers stamped with these fatal words mm. as a suspect person, a person of the second sort. And he lived on the edge of starvation, begging for a living, until 1957, when after Stalin's death, um, he was rehabilitated, and the truth of his exploit was recognized, and he was made a hero of the Soviet Union. Now, after listening to this incredible story, I said to my interpreter, ask him what he thought of his own country after this. And remember, they treated not hundreds of thousands, millions of, of, of Russians like this. And my interpreter, Luba, she turned to me and she said, you can't ask him that. She said, you must realize we're all still very ashamed of what happened in that era. You must listen to what he says, because hmm. you must ask him questions like that. It's an incredible story. And indeed, the book Armageddon by Max Hastings is rich with stories collected uh, in that direct way. And we um, must pause for a moment right now to take care of some commercials. And it is time to truly invite telephone calls. We'll be on to them in just a few minutes. The number 591-7200. 591-7200. And if you are listening at some greater distance, listening on the Internet, and want to reach us by email, the email address is extension720 at tribune.com. Extension 720 has one word at Tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com, or 591-7200. Get your calls and email in. We'll be with you shortly, right after these words. And we return to Max Hastings in just a moment or two. We will go to the phones. But I do want, I do want to put a last question to you. What uh, finally would one say in summary about what was right and what was wrong about that war? 
the real tragedy when everybody in the West was celebrating the liberation of Europe in May 1945, of course, for the people of Eastern Europe, that a great tragedy was continuing. And some of the most chilling documents I read when I was researching this book were all the stuff about Poland in the mm. Soviet archives. But in the autumn of 1945, the several Russian divisions were still shooting it out with the Poles in Poland, where all the Poles had done with whom they were fighting is that they were fighting for the right to freedom and democracy. So it wasn't really until the 1980s and the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Empire that the world really reaped the true benefits that the men who, uh, women who'd given so much to liberate Europe in 1945 that they really got their reward when Europe did become truly liberated. That in 1945, one has to be careful about celebrating too much because the people of Western Europe had indeed been freed from the Nazi tyranny. But one must never forget that in a way, the great Western Allied cause was deeply compromised by having to enlist the services of Stalin's empire to do so much of the fighting for the liberation of Europe. What I'm saying now is of interest to those in the booth as well as to our listeners. We must quickly find uh, the tape we have of Churchill giving the speech at uh, in Missouri, the coal, the Iron Curtain speech, because this in a way heralds yeah. the end of the war, but the continuing problem. And we have it, here it is. Uh, I spoke earlier, ladies and gentlemen, uh, of the temple of peace. Workmen from all countries must build that temple. If two of the workmen know each other particularly well and are old friends, if their families are intermingled, if they have faith in each other's purpose, hope in each other's future, and charity towards each other's shortcomings, to quote some good words I read here the other day, why cannot they work together at the common task as friends and partners? Why can they not share their tools? and thus increase each other's working powers. Indeed, they must do so, or else the temple may not be built, or being built it may collapse, and we shall all be proved again unteachable, and have to go and try to learn again for a third time in a school of war incomparably more rigorous than that from which we have just been released. The Dark Ages may return, the Stone Age may return on the gleaming wings of science. And what might now shower immeasurable material blessings upon mankind may even be about its total destruction. Beware, I say, time is maybe short. Do not let us take the course of allowing events to drift along until it is too late. If there is to be a fraternal association of the kind I have described, with all the extra strength and security which both our countries can derive from it, let us make sure that that great fact is known to the world and that it plays its part in steadying and stabilizing the foundations of peace. There is the path of wisdom. Prevention is better than cure. A shadow had fallen upon the scenes so lately lightened, lighted 
by the Allied victory. Uh, no, no, nobody knows what Soviet Russia and its communist international organization intends to do in the immediate future, or what are the limits, if any, to their expansive and proselytizing tendencies. I have a strong admiration and regard for the valiant Russian people. I am for my wartime comrade, Marshal Stalin. Uh, there is deep sympathy and goodwill in Britain, and I doubt not here also towards the peoples of all the Russians, and who resolved to persevere through many differences and rebuffs in establishing lasting friendships. We understand the Russian need to be secure on our western frontiers. From the removal, uh, by the removal of all possibility of German aggression. We welcome Russia to our rightful place among the leading nations of the world. We welcome her flag upon the seas. Above all, we welcome, or should welcome, constant, frequent, and growing contacts between the Russian people and our own peoples on both sides of the Atlantic. <laughs> it is my duty, however, for I am sure you would not wish me uh, to uh, not to state the, the, the facts as I see them to you. It's my duty to place before you certain facts about the present position in Europe. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. And all are subject, in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and in some cases increasing measure of control from, uh, from Moscow. Police governments are prevailing uh, from Moscow. Yet Athens alone, Greece, with its immortal glories, is free to decide its future at an election under British, American, and French observation. The, the Russian-dominated Polish government has been encouraged to make enormous and wrongful inroads upon Germany, and mass expulsions of millions of Germans on a scale grievous and undreamed of are now taking place. The, the communist parties, which were very small in all these eastern states of Europe, have been raised to preeminence and power far beyond their numbers and are seeking everywhere to obtain totalitarian control. Police governments are prevailing in nearly every case, and so far, except in Czechoslovakia, there is no true democracy. And thus began 
as he informs us, the cold, what we came to call the Cold War. Yeah, and it really, I think most historians would argue today that it was really only with the end of the Cold War that one could mm -hmm. really say that the terrible business of the Second World War was concluded. So the Second World War ends, in a sense, in 1989 or thereabouts. I think that, I, I think that will be the long-term verdict of history. Fascinating. We are due for a quick round of commercials, then at last onto the phones, 5917200. And we go directly to the phones, 591-7200, and you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, I was calling in regard to uh, World War II. When Italy was being destroyed, losing everything, the Italians turned on Mussolini. In regard to the Germans, they stood with Hitler to the very last. Would you care to comment on these different cultures? Well, of course, you're absolutely right, and in, in, that was one of the things that caused um, many Allied soldiers and uh, some of the Allied leaders to feel that the Germans really didn't deserve very much sympathy. But it was quite extraordinary, and it's one of those enigmas that still baffles history. How, when rational people... Here was Germany, which in, um, before the coming of Hitler had been one of the most educated, civilized, cultured, sophisticated societies on Earth. How it allowed itself to become mesmerized by... Um, this appalling regime and um, this group of gangsters, for of course Hitler and those around him were no more and no less, and how these people continued to believe to the very end that they owed some sort of duty to Hitler. And all the arguments, of course, one absolutely simple point, which many German veterans still make to this day, they say, well, of course we had to keep fighting to keep the Russians out, but it only made sense to keep resisting the Red Army if they'd let the Western Allies into Germany as they didn't. So I think you're absolutely right that the Italian people showed as soon as they had the opportunity that they really, uh, they'd understood very clearly that um, fascism had nothing to offer their people. But um, the, the Germans never got that message with the, um, how to escape from Hitler. With the possible exception of the generals that tried to overthrow him in uh, July of 44, but an interesting part of that was I read that, you know, when when Scholitz surrendered Paris to the Allies in August of 44, that uh, he was put in a prisoner of war camp with other German generals. And evidently they were all Hitler sympathizers because he was like excommunicated or ostracized by the whole group. No, well, that, exact, that did happen. And they were in just the same way that till the very end of the war, that in some prisoner of war camps, that um, young Nazi fanatics were killing um, Germans who expressed any doubts about the outcome of the war. I mean, I find it amazing that one was coming across um, letters written by Germans in POW camps as late as 1945, in which they were still saying that they hoped that um, Hitler's wonder weapons were going to enable him to win the war. So the, the great mystery, the great enigma, which I, I've tried to address in the book, is, is, is the fashion in which a whole nation continued to, to, to live in this fantasy world to the very end of the Second World War with tragic consequences not only for um, all Germany's victims but also, of course, for the German people. You're still in town tomorrow, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm speaking at the um, Pritzer Military Library at 610 North Fairbanks at 6 o'clock tomorrow night and be delighted to hear any listeners who found time to come along. Pritzker Military Library. That's a new institution. It's been there for about a year, I guess. And they've got a very distinguished roster of speakers. And you'll be there tomorrow at 6. Excellent. Uh, and we go back to the phones. 591-7200. Good evening. 
Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, uh, just a fascinating topic, of course, uh, as terrifying as it is also. Uh, Mr. Hastings, I believe you had more or less asserted that if only Germany had given up earlier in World War II, the red terror of the Soviets that later ravaged basically all Germans, women especially, not to mention children, ravaged by the Red Army in a way that perhaps even Attila and Genghis would have found appalling, that if only the Germans had given up earlier, such a depth of red terror would not have been. In light of the forced starvations and executions of millions uh, that were well known to Germans at that time to have occurred under the Soviet red terror just to skip away in the Ukraine of the 30s, could you, Mr. Hastings, perhaps give us a glimpse of the argument in favor of surrender that you would have given to a German housewife in 1943 or thereabouts? My gosh, that's one of those tests that you have not to have to go through. But, uh, but it would have been incomparably more difficult for Stalin to justify what happened in Germany in 1945 if the Germans had quit in an ordered fashion in 44, if they'd managed to depose Hitler. Um, that the culture of revenge, uh, of course it was there. I mean, one of the, I learned all sorts of things when I was writing this book. For example, all through uh, 42 and 43 and 44, that Red Army soldiers were encouraged by their political officers to keep revenge diaries in which they solemnly wrote down terrible things that they saw or had been done to their families uh, as, as a kind of account book in which they were uh, to then uh, um, put the other side, the ledger, when they got into Germany and had a chance to do something about it. Now, in fact, one of the curious things that happened in the last phase of the war was that um, in Moscow, Stalin and those around him suddenly began to realize that by offering the Germans absolutely no chance of, of, of anything except um, rape, destruction, and death, that they were forcing the Germans to fight even more savagely. So the Russians did try to have a bit of a change of heart uh, towards the end and suggest that maybe they ought to start accepting surrenders from some Germans. But uh, it was too late by then. The culture was too deeply ingrained. But I agree that it was not easy. I don't, you don't think you were ever going to persuade um, a, a German housewife or a German soldier that they ought to have um, given in to the Russians. What you might have been able to do was persuade them of the logic of giving in to the Americans and the British in a way that they didn't. All right, thanks to the caller, and uh, we catch up with the commercial load. We've been late all along. Here is the last round, and then directly back to the phones. And uh, let me read you one email, at least. Um, the majority of German ground forces in 1944-45 were engaged on the Russian front, and the majority of German military casualties during the war, some 80% occurred on the Russian front. This, thus, would it not be fair to say that the significance of Overlord, the Normandy campaign, and the air campaign, was that it not only shortened the war for everyone, but that, importantly, the campaigns meant that when the Cold War started, it started with the Iron Curtain through the middle of Germany instead of on the Rhine, if not the English Channel? Well, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Yes, it's absolutely true that the Eastern Front was the dominant campaign of the military campaign of the Second World War, in which by far the largest loss of life took place. One important point we always have to say about Overlord, if Overlord, the D-Day invasion, had failed, there's not much doubt it could never have been remounted until 1945. And although it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the Second World War, what is undoubtedly true is a very much larger slice of Europe would have fallen under Soviet domination, and there would have been absolutely nothing that the United States and Britain would have been able to do to prevent that. So I, I've always thought myself that... Um, although you can say 
oh well, <clears throat> was was D-Day really that important? Because uh, we'd have won in the end anyway. It mattered hugely, I think, to the post-war shape of Europe. Um, here's a listener uh, uh, listening to us on the internet in New York City who poses four interesting questions, and I fear I can't read all four of them. Let me give you just one of them. Uh, should the Western Allies apologize for the air campaign against Germany? No. This was a point of controversy during the Queen's recent visit to Germany. I feel very strongly no. This is the Bomber-Harris but, question. Um, one of the things that, I mean, I'm one of those, I wrote a book called Bomber Command uh, 25 years ago, in which I was very critical of the air campaign, I still am. But there's a huge difference between being critical of the way it was done and starting to talk about war crimes. And one thing I find rather spooky about modern Germany today is there's an increasing mood in Germany to say, oh, well, everybody did terrible things in the war, and we did the Holocaust to the Jews, and you did strategic bombing. And I'm afraid I don't buy that argument at all. That in the end, strategic bombing may have been a mistake, but it was done with the mm -hmm. honest intention of um, bringing more quickly to an end the Nazi tyranny. It was a military campaign, and although, yes, it hit, hit at civilians, that its, its purposes were military. What was so ghastly about the war crimes of the Germans is that most of them were directed against entirely innocent and harmless people. And it is very, very dangerous, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. I've been in debates with German historians in which I said it seems to me very foolish to start equating anything with the war crimes of the Nazis. So I'm afraid, yes, I think the bombing was not uh, well or sensibly, the bombing campaign wasn't well or sensibly carried out, although the Americans were better at it than the British. Uh, but to talk, start talking about war crimes is crazy. Here is the next caller. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening, Milt. Yes, sir. I'd like to ask your guest in his research what he learned, if anything, about mm -hmm. the German resistance after the fall of Berlin, and specifically the SS units that continue to campaign uh, against the Allied occupation, and, and uh, if this is the case, how eventually they were stopped and by whom? It, it's a very interesting question, this, that broadly speaking, uh, from all I've ever been able to find, uh, there was no significant resistance to the Western Allies. On the other hand, in the East, uh, there was continuing resistance, quite remarkable resistance. A lot of Germans, and especially, as you say, the SS fanatic, who felt they had no future in the hands of the Red Army, did continue to fight. And I met a number of Red Army veterans who described how their units uh, were taken by surprise, you know, late in May or into even June and July. Uh, 45 by suddenly meeting groups of Germans when they weren't expecting it, when they thought the war was over. So I can't give um, a comprehensive documentary answer. I've still got a mass of documents that I got out from the uh, Soviet archives that I haven't even had a chance to work through about the post-May May 45 period. But yes, there was continuing some continued guerrilla resistance in the East. As far as I can establish, there was negligible resistance in the West. All right. Well, thank you. We thank you, sir. Glad to have heard from you. Uh, let us go directly to another. Hello, you're on the air. Hello. Uh, this may sound terribly naive. I uh, wasn't reading the newspapers in those days and so forth. I was born in 43. <laughs> but uh, what I want to know is to what extent did, like, our leadership, to what extent were they actually surprised at the discoveries when our armies broke into these places at the extent and scale of the atrocities? We had... That is to say, it was a large country. We had air superiority, and we had numerous aerial photographs of everything we wanted, and there was quite a bit of disaffected people. We seem to have had a little trouble getting information out about uh, a lot of military targets that are probably better protected, you know, and so forth. That, is it likely that uh, the leaders of our countries at least uh, 
knew something or knew pretty much everything about the degree of what was going on there and simply didn't feel it was uh, or did not tell us or something. To a degree, um, there was... There were a lot of reports about the concentration camps, the Holocaust, or uh, from individual Jewish witnesses coming out of Europe. But there was still a reluctance on the part of the Allied leadership really to grasp the full scale of what was going on. It wasn't until they got into Germany and actually found the concentration camps. When the first concentration camps were found in the east by the Red Army, that there was a great reluctance to believe the accounts that some Western correspondents were allowed by the Russians to put out because they thought it was some sort of Russian propaganda ploy. And the BBC, for example, um, refused to transmit a uh, report from uh, one of its own correspondents with the Red Army uh, about one of the first concentration camps because they thought it was some sort of Russian stunt. So that the answer was there was still great confusion about um, about what was going but on. But is it not true that by late 1943, mm. um, some people who had escaped from the camps... Yeah, absolutely uh, true. Uh, ...sponsored by or, uh, or put forward by the Jewish agency did reach uh, Allied governments to tell them of the extermination operations? Sir? There was still a reluctance to... To, to really take this aboard. There was a general feeling, I mean, some, I've quoted in my book one simply terrible remark by uh, a, a British uh, civil servant in, mm -hmm. the, in the British Foreign Office uh, who said um, something like, he said, uh, he minuted, he, put, he scribbled on a minute about the Jews. He said, really, haven't we heard enough from all these whinging Jews? And mm -hmm. uh, he argued that they were taking far more trouble uh, uh, on the part of the British Foreign Office than their um, predicament deserved. There was, a, there was a feeling on the part of the Allied leadership, or some of them anyway, that here was the whole of Europe in a desperate, desperate state. And why should everybody um, single out the plight of the Jews for attention? It was only really when they did get into Germany that they realized that what had been done to the Jews did possess a unique quality. Our caller is eager to say another word. Just very briefly, uh, please, sir. Yes, sir. In other words, I can understand why they would say that, uh, but... Uh, the reasons given by a chief of state are very commonly not his actual reasons. That is to say, I feel that it would have been quite easy, as to the extent of the atrocities against the, uh, for example, prisoners of war who were more numerous than the Jews, or at least as many who suffered, that there, uh, in other words, there was, they, uh, it seems clear to me that they knew. Stalin knew we had the atomic bomb, and he knew where we were building it and everything Well, else. in fact, Roosevelt knew. There were uh, representations were made to Roosevelt uh, seeking to bomb the railroad lines leading to Auschwitz and uh, Treblinka, and Roosevelt and his people signed off on that, said we wouldn't do that. Isn't that right? I've, I've always had uh, some sympathy with the reluctance to bomb, partly because Allied bombing even in 1945 was fantastically inaccurate. Well, yes. And although we didn't like to admit this, that at a time when uh, Allied bombers were still often having considerable trouble in achieving um, a mean aiming accuracy of, of several miles, um, they, it was a very doubtful proposition whether they could have achieved that accuracy. One has to remember a lot of hard things. To give one example, I have written about in my book that very few people know about. The Dutch, that in the winter of 44, the Dutch people who had been led to believe they were about to be liberated in a broadcast from Eisenhower, in fact found themselves um, more or less hostages of the Germans and dying in thousands of malnutrition. And a whole procession of um, Dutch delegations went to see Eisenhower, Churchill, all the rest of it, and they said, can't some Allied forces be diverted to liberate Holland? Um, 
and the Allied leaders gave the same reply they gave to the leaders of the Jewish Agency and mm -hmm. so on and others. They said the best service that we can render to all the oppressed people of Europe uh, is to get on into Germany and end the Nazi tyranny. And it was a cruel reply. And I think it is in um, it's it's undoubtedly true that some um, leading Allied figures can be accused of, frankly, um, a pretty mm -hmm. awful brand of callousness about what was happening to the Jews. But one does have to see that there were a huge range of persecuted minorities in Europe um, who were all clamoring for attention at this period. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't really till the end that there was a full understanding of the unique nature of what had been done to Jewish people. Sometime during his papacy, Paul VI appears at the United Nations in New York to give them a speech. It's a speech about war. Gives it in French, and the key line was, jamais la guerre, jamais plus la guerre. Never war, never again war. That's what he urges upon all organized mankind uh, assembled there at the United Nations. We've had a lot of war since then. We've never had one remotely as terrible, thank no, God, to as be the sure. Second World War. It's certainly true. One of the things that makes me so skeptical about some of the famous neocons here in the United States, that almost anybody who's ever seen a war <laughs> tends to be pretty skeptical about going to war again. And I must confess, the chicken hawks, the people who are so very keen to go and bomb other people, uh, when they've taken very good care never to put themselves in the line of fire themselves, uh, they do tend to make one um, a little bit skeptical, should we say politely. And a reviewer of my book in Britain said that he wasn't sure Armageddon was a quite adequate title for the sheer enormity and horror of what took place. And the best reason, sometimes people say too many books are written about the Second World War, but the best reason for going on telling these stories is it, it ought to make people a little bit more skeptical, a little bit more hesitant about, uh, I'm not a pacifist at all, I passionately believe one has to use force sometimes in the cause of um, freedom. Um, but one just has to be very, very careful when we see the unspeakable consequences. It is worth noting, even as we close, because time has just about elapsed, that a number of political scientists have come to the conclusion now that the end to war is marked by the conversion to democracy, that they find when they look at the historical record that democracies don't fight wars with one another. I think that's absolutely sound. And in that respect, I'm sure that uh, uh, George Bush is dead right. With that, we do come to the end of the available time. It's been a great pleasure to have with us tonight Sir Max Hastings, former editor, I might have said, of the British uh, newspaper, um, The Telegraph, uh, author of a number of very important histories, the most recent, Armageddon, The Battle for Germany, 1944-45, published by Alfred A. Knopf and Company.